Well, welcome to the next instalment of Breakfast with Jesus, where I'm moving through uh, the book of Jeremiah, based largely upon the uh, conversations and meditations that uh, my dear wife and I have had um, as we've been through this book. The um, particular passage I want to look at now, it, it's a little jewel and I couldn't resist um, drawing everyone's attention to this. It's actually the last verses of Jeremiah 31. Now, just to put it in context, I, I talked in Jeremiah 32 about his purchase of a, of a field and how that alludes to a new um, hope and, and really gives us insight into how eschatology, i.e. the logic of hope can influence the way we look at the world we live in. But that in turn, that logic of hope was based upon the extraordinary chapter 31, which I also gave a talk on, uh, which is the very extensive declaration of a new covenant. Um, a new covenant, which as I said, has no conditions. And the only precondition, which is absolutely established in the text, is creation. If you can budge creation and the created order, I will budge the covenant of love and redemption. Now, sandwiched in between, right at the end of Jeremiah 31, is this fascinating little paragraph. I'll read it out and then talk about it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garab and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kedron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Well, um, rather facetiously, I thought I could call this talk um, Is Hell Eternal? Or even more provocatively, Will the Devil Be Redeemed? And um, what began as a, a fanciful talk on this topic um, has rather grown in scope as I've, as I've researched it. Um, well, um, the, the question of is hell eternal and will the devil be redeemed, of course, um, is a question that is generally thrown at um, people who believe in universal salvation. I think uh, most, uh, um, sadly, really, in the title of Michael McCormack's book, The Devil's Redemption, um, the the the, uh, the 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 vast majority of that book, well, not vast majority. Its its main emphasis is a stigmatizing of origin and his reputation, and McCormack uh, is is out to really return origin to the dustbins of history. Um, I think he'll absolutely fail in that. I mean, the 
reputation of origin has been reconstructed beginning probably at the beginning of the 20th century by the great Catholic theologians of the Resourcement, von Balthasar and then others, uh, continuing on today with the work of people like John Beer, really re-establishing origin as the Aristotle of Christianity. I love the phrase of Luke Timothy Johnson about origin, which is, I'd rather be wrong with origin than right with everybody else. But what McCormack does there is what a lot of people do. Um, Another example of it would be, are you telling me that God's going to save Hitler? In other words, surely, surely there are, you know, some people so evil that they cannot be saved. I think Brad Jerzak has recently um, addressed this in in an article uh, or talk, which I haven't yet read, but would be interesting. And, and of course, what McCormack's doing in, in entitling the book The Devil's Redemption is a cheap debating tri- trick uh, for which I don't really forgive him because I know exact, I can recognise its rhetorical origins so clearly. In other words, if I want to debate somebody um, and I want to throw mud at them, I find um, some belief that may be on the edges of what they believe and headline that. And, and, and characterise all that they believe by what is probably at the extremity of their belief. And that's certainly the case with Origen. You know, he speculates about the devil's redemption, but it's hardly the core of Origen's work. So the question, we can return to that question, you know, well, is uh, indeed hell eternal? Uh, will the devil be redeemed? Will Hitler be redeemed? So that's, that's a... Um, very modern debate. Um, let's let's uh, let's approach this in a roundabout way um, by looking at the passage I've just read out. Now, to put the passage in context, um, it does follow immediately after the declaration of the new covenant, which has established the cosmic scope of salvation, um, and it goes from that cosmic scope of salvation into the reclamation of this area south of Jerusalem. Um, As as I go through this talk, um, I think there's a sort of associated line of literary interpretation, uh, which I want to say more about later, which is that it boils down to, well, the way to handle a text is let the text speak don't impose on the text retrospectively what you think it means. What if you start with a text and let the text do its work and work upwards from the text rather than retrospectively templating onto the text what you think it's saying? So um, this, um, well, spoilers alert, it's pretty clear, and I'll come to it later, that this area that Jeremiah declares will be within the scope of this redemption includes the Valley of Hinnom. It doesn't name it, but it includes it. So um, let's take a step back and look at um, the Valley of Hinnom in Jeremiah. I've already alluded to this on my talk on H-E-L-L, hell. And I want to take it further, and the further I take this, I think the more, the more um, important and um, 
the more central, I think, this line of inquiry um, is. So um, just to recall what, what we said in a previous talks is that um, the most common use of the H-E-double-L word in the New Testament is actually not H-E-double-L, but Gehenna. And Gehenna is no more than the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom. So they're exactly the same. If you look up an Old Testament concordance, look up the Valley of Hinnom, that's exactly the same as what becomes Gehenna in the New Testament. It's uh, uh, David Bentley Hart says, uh, mentioned 11 times um, in the synoptics. Um, of those 11 times, well over half, I think six or seven, are in Matthew's Gospel. It's mentioned once in James and nowhere else. In other words, what we today call hell, H-E-double-L, -L, um, what biblically was the word Gehenna, is never used nor even alluded to by um, the apostles um, in, in the epistles. Paul never mentions it. Peter never mentions it. John never mentions it. Interesting how it's become so dominant in our theological landscape. It wasn't in theirs quite clearly. Quite clearly. By the way, the other word is Hades, um, translated as hell. It's quite different in meaning. Um, it doesn't have the concept of judgment behind it. it when, when it's used, it's, it's, it's gesturing by Jesus or by the author of, the, uh, of um, the gospel to Greek cosmology and conceptions of the afterlife, of death. So very interestingly, by the way, uh, Matthew 16, um, when Jesus responds to Peter's recognition of his status as Messiah, and Jesus says the gates of what is normally translated uh, you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is, it is not H-E-double-L, of course, but it's not Gehenna either. It's the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, which is really interesting. Um, um, it really alludes to the fact that it's death he has in mind rather than um, you know, devilish opposition. But leaving that aside for the moment. Um, so what I'm saying, um, what I want to do now with this word, the Valley of Hinnom, is I want to actually start with Scripture as the metaphorical landscape from which Christ and Matthew was drawing. So not, you know, when, when the H-E-double-L word has retrospectively imposed uh, medieval pagan concepts of terror on it. Um, in order to free ourselves from that distortion, we need to go back into the metaphorical landscape from which Christ was drawing and build from that forward. Now, how do we do that? Um, well, just remember how metaphor works. A metaphor is, is, a, is a verbal triad or a, a, a thinking engine. It starts with a context and situation which is familiar, mines that context for some allusions, it then takes that into another territory by imagery of unfamiliar and new, so that it can yield a third way, which is some kind of insight. And the, 
The insight is the interpretation. And generally, in powerful metaphor, the speaker doesn't spell it out. He leaves that to the audience to work out the third way. So us as readers have to, have to participate um, actively in how does one and one equal three? It's up to us to answer that question. So metaphor is a very evocative tool um, for imagination, but it's a tool that requires the reader to do work. So we need to do the work. Let's do it. The Valley of Hinnom, um, it is most dominant in Jeremiah. Um, so it is used uh, in, by Joshua, merely geographical. That's all, nothing more than naming an area. Then um, the Book of Kings um, identifies the Valley of Hinnom, uh, which is a valley immediately south of Jerusalem. When I say south of Jerusalem, it's just a few hundred metres south of Jerusalem. It's not as if it's like miles away. Um, for the valley where bad things happen. Um, so uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse uh, 10, we, we are told of Josiah's reforms um, where it says, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter there as an offering to Molech. In other words, in Josiah's wonderful reforms, he cleaned up this place and the language suggests it had become a practice area of darkness. Uh, Chronicles identifies more when that happens. 2 Chronicles 28 says, identifies Ahaz as the, the really evil king who started this. And then chapter 2 Chronicles 33 identifies Manasseh, who was Josiah's grandfather, as continuing and intensifying the Ahaz blasphemy. And it says, of Manasseh, he built altars. This is really important. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. In other words, he defiled the temple and he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery dealt with mediums and with necromancers. So this is very much, particularly in the hands of Manasseh, this is the Nadia of Israelite religion. Uh, they had really um, distorted the revelation of Yahweh into an absolute parody uh, of the truth and, and had really surrendered it to the forces of evil and darkness. So that's the, the use of the Valley of Hinnom in Kings and Chronicles. It's not as if it's a casual, um, you know, it's a, it's a casual one or two in a list of 20. It, it's, it's, it's better thought of as some real low point, real low point. It can't get worse than that. Jeremiah is the, the one who picks up the Valley of Hinnom and begins to use it prophetically or metaphorically. And he does it in two um, explicit places. The first is Jeremiah 7, and where the, where the Lord says he's going to change this valley of Hinnom. He's going to rename it as the valley of slaughter. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have said... Um, 
detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. And that's an extraordinary second clause there. It's like, not that I didn't command this, I never even conceived human beings would start doing this. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Specifically, very specifically, Jeremiah is now um, using the Valley of Hinnom as a synecdoche for all the wrongs that Israel did. And then he's taking the metaphor and advancing it from history to prophecy by saying, well, actually, it's going to become the Valley of Slaughter. Now, this is very specific, and it's a historical reference to the sacking of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, which was imminent when these words were wrote. It wasn't like it was 100 years away. Jeremiah lived through it. He actually lived through and experienced um, Nebuchadnezzar's sacking of Jerusalem in 586. So that's what, the, that's what the Valley of Slaughter was talking about. Not talking about eternal fire or judgment after death or anything. It's talking about this is going to be an awful siege in which great slaughter will happen. And that's exactly what did happen. Um, then Jeremiah takes the Valley of Hinnom further in chapter 19, the second big reference, where um, he does more of his street art. He takes a potter's flask to the Valley of Hinnom um, and he, 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 he begins that journey apparently in the temple and he repeats the dire prophecy of destruction. Um, in this same field where the Jews killed and sacrificed, they themselves will meet the same fate of destruction. So that's the use of the Valley of Hinnom, the metaphorical landscape on which Jesus is drawing when he talks about it as what became H-E-L-L. So we do ourselves a service by mentally putting ourselves back in Jeremiah's time and absorbing uh, what it meant and Jeremiah's use of the Valley of Hinnom as a synecdoche metaphor for the, the low point of Israel's history. So now what use does Jesus make of the Valley of Hinnom? And in particular, Jesus, I think, in Matthew's Gospel. This becomes very quickly a subset of a bigger point, which is Matthew is positioning uh, Jesus as the new Jeremiah, the new prophet of doom. Now, it's very well known that Matthew's gospel positions Jesus as the new Moses, the modern Moses, the architect of the true Israel. Um, it's a very powerful literary device that elevates the life of Jesus from being an individual biography to a national, a national narrative and a cosmic narrative by extension. You thought this was Jesus? No, this was Israel. You thought this was Jesus? No, this was Moses. 
As a matter of fact, when you saw Moses, you were seeing the incarnate Christ um, or the beginnings of incarnation. This single man, Jesus, is the true Moses, the true Israel. Now, that's pretty well known the way uh, um, I know Mark Strong was the first one who broke that open for me in the literary structure of, you know, particularly the beginning of the book, um, you know, going down to Egypt and 40 days in the wilderness and so on. What is less well known is the way that Matthew also aligns Jesus with Jeremiah. And this has been explored by several scholars. I particularly was blessed by an article by um, Professor Ross Winkle, which you can Google on this regard. Um, it's really quite breathtaking. And um, what's absolutely critical in Winkle's summary is Matthew 16, which you've already alluded to, when, um, when Jesus um, asks his disciples, you know, who, who do people say that I am? And let me just find it and read it out um, because it, it's significant. Um, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So without going into the detail, um, uh, Winkle believes that the mention of Jeremiah is significant. It's not insignificant. It's not as it's it's positioning Jesus as a prophet, but as particularly a Jeremiah prophet. And um, Winkle's article looks at the 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 ways in which Matthew, the author, is creating motifs that echo the life of Jeremiah. And this would work retrospectively if you took a incarnational view of the life of Jeremiah, you would say, well, God is actually rehearsing his incarnate presence amongst us in the life of Jeremiah, not just the words of Jeremiah. Um, there are, by the way, very strong parallels with the calls of both Moses and Jeremiah. I mean, they are the ones, both of them very explicitly when they're called say, I can't speak. Jeremiah chapter 1 and then in Exodus you see the same with Moses. Very similar. So um, the intertextual web starts to link Moses and Jeremiah together as well as Christ, Moses and Jeremiah. Now this becomes important because it establishes in the narrative of Matthew strong parallels with Jeremiah's uh, narratives of doom. Uh, particularly um, as they are they, they're both positioned in the temple, both positioned as being appalled by the way the leaders of Jerusalem have shed innocent blood and by the way the leaders of Jerusalem are blaspheming the temple. But Jeremiah 7 and Matthew 21. So yeah, the very famous um, prophetic judgment chapters of Matthew's Gospel, 21 and so on through to 24, absolutely are illuminated if you have first absorbed your mind in Jeremiah and then you say, wow, it, it, um, the, 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 the connections, the, cup, the coupling is very, very close. Both G Jeremiah and, and Jesus were excoriating the rulers as shedding innocent blood. 
Um, and we know that for Jeremiah, this was typified in the Valley of Hinnom. So it's not surprising that Jesus uses the same metaphorical toolkit and range as Jeremiah, the Valley of Hinnom. Um, both men, by the way, I won't go into this, they were targets of personal targets of the ruling class. For Jesus, it became what we know, his assassination, his delivering into death. He was the ultimate innocent blood. But the book of Jeremiah is very notable for the personal attacks on him. He wasn't killed, but he was close to it. He was imprisoned and shackled. You know, he, he, he was um, not merely a verbal opponent of the king. He, they wanted his blood. They wanted him dead. So very strong parallels between Jeremiah and Jesus. Now, what this does is it begins to illuminate Jesus's use of the Valley of Hinnom, um, which is clearly a subset of Matthew seeing Jesus as the new Jeremiah. And what this does is, it, and by the way, it also works two ways. It sees in Jeremiah, the Christ figure at work. Um, um, it, it's positioning, Matthew is positioning Jesus as, you know, the last of the prophets, the living in the doomed city, just as Jeremiah was living in a doomed city and prophesying its inevitable historical destruction in the case of Jeremiah happened in 586. In the case of Jesus, it happened equally catastrophically at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. In both cases, the Valley of Hinnom was used as, as a metaphorical fund to critique apostasy and judgment and pronounce judgment. But the judgment in view was in both cases a historical, a moment in history, not eternal. So you, to read you know, H-E-L-L as eternal conscious torment um, is just a very retrospective distortion of pagan mythologies back onto a text that just, if you, if you read the text the other way, which is from its historical context into its metaphorical range, not talking about that at all. It's, it's talking about a historical judgment. So that leads us to where we began, which is the... Uh, forgotten mention of the Valley of Hinnom in the book of Jeremiah. Now, I've mentioned the two big explicit ones, but we know from reading, from what I've said, is that Jeremiah was using the Valley of Hinnom as a, you know, a metaphorical landscape from which he was drawing um, imagery, um, imagery of judgment and destruction. But the verses that we began with Turn that on its head. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt. And he goes through, and the measuring line shall go out, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, this is an allusion to the sacrificial tombs that were there, they will be sacred to the Lord. The valley of Hinnom will be sacred to the Lord. So is this indeed referring to the valley? Of Hinnom. So I'll quote here the comment from the Zondervan background commentary, and it says of this short bit of ge geography, this is what it says. The description, uh, in this description of the boundaries of Jerusalem, the walking tour takes us counterclockwise toward the south of the city, which is where the Valley of Hinnom was. The exact locations of the two hills mentioned here are not known. But given the information we do have, Garab is probably on the southwest and Goa on the southeast of the city. 
and this places Goa as somewhere in the Valley of Hinnom. So here, this is amazing. amazing. This final reference or allusion, uh, though it doesn't mention the Valley of Hinnom by name, it does declare the Valley of Hinnom will be renewed and redeemed. It is, it is the declaration of a wide triumphant sweep of the scope of redemption that the Lord Yahweh has in mind. It's so wide it will encompass the notorious Valley of Hinnom and render it sacred to the Lord. That makes the triumph of this new covenant complete. It, there's no corner it leaves out of its redemptive sweep or power. So Jeremiah says, even in this place that has been the nadir of Israel's sin and desertion of the Lord, it will return to the Lord. The measuring line, which is alluding to God's rule, boundaries and order, will leave no place unredeemed, including the Valley of Hinnom. Well, I think all of that makes uh, origins speculations that God will redeem the devil and redeem hell. There won't be a hell existing like an eternal barbecue at the end of the universe. I think it makes it uh, a pretty um, justifiable line of inquiry. So God bless you with those thoughts and um, ha have a look at uh, Ross Winkle's article. You can download it on uh, the internet. I mean, he doesn't go into the same issues I've gone into, but it very, very powerfully draws the um, the connection, literary connections between Jesus and Jeremiah.